Hello, everyone. Hello. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, you are so good. And Lord, we thank you that um, you sent your son, that he died in our place and he rose again, that our hearts of stone might be transformed into hearts of flesh. You give us a heart that is alive, Lord. And I, Lord, I, I've seen so much evidence even this morning of just the way you're moving and the way your spirit is at work here. And I pray through this service that you would speak through me, that these would be your words, not mine. And I pray for everyone here that you would just give us ears to hear um, and respond, um, that we wouldn't be like the Israelites in the book of Ezekiel and be a rebellious house, but that we would be those who respond with a heart of flesh to the God who gave us life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're in a series on the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Ezekiel is like 48 chapters, and the first two-thirds of the book are all judgment that culminates in the judgment coming true. And today I'm only in chapters like three through seven, so today's a little negative. But I don't think it's really negative, but I I just want to say on the front end, um, if you leave halfway through the sermon... You're just going to kind of leave in like a, man, like, like Laura's leaving right now. And so she's going to be just, she's just going to be really discouraged today. Um, <laughs> sorry, Laura. Just, okay, so everyone, uh, we're, we're in the book of Ezekiel and we're talking about a new heart. The, the thematic idea of the book of Ezekiel and, and the, the idea, it, it shows up over and over in the book, is that we on our own, because of sin, we have a heart of stone And God's desire is that we would have a heart of flesh. And the problem is that on our own, that heart of stone will never change. And so we need God to take it out and replace it with a heart of flesh. And and so that's what we need. That's the whole point of this book. And and the front half of this book is just a whole lot of judgment. And we're going to talk about a lot of it today. And as we talk about it, I do, I want to encourage all of you that, that we're in, we're, we're post-cross, post-resurrection. Um, we live in, in like the reality that, that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the judgment that we're going to talk about, we know from God sending his son to save the world that his desire was not to just, just be a judge. and just like He does not take joy in the judgment, but it's a reality for those who refuse to turn away and stay stone-hearted. So that's where we're headed this morning. And as we start off this morning, um, we've we got to remember just a little bit of what we talked about last week. Um, last week, Pastor Rich talked about there, there's, Ezekiel is, is a part of a group of Israelites who have gone into exile. Um, students, this is like the whole spring, we're talking about exile. Ezekiel is from Jerusalem, and, and um, he's a priest. And, and what happens in Jerusalem is the Babylonians come, and they attack Jerusalem. They don't completely destroy Jerusalem, and they don't destroy the temple, but when they leave, they take a whole bunch of people with them, and they take them far east into Babylon. And, and when that happens, Ezekiel is there. And so in Ezekiel 1, and through the whole book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is like 700 miles away from Jerusalem. And that's going to be real important as we go on. But, but the, when this all happens in Israel, what winds up happening is because the Babylonians did not destroy Jerusalem, because the temple still stands, there are prophets in Jerusalem that are saying, hey, we did it. We did it. We didn't lose. God is still on our side. We're still doing what we want. Let's keep going. God is good. We are good. 
And, and um, none of those prophets have a name as a book of the Bible. Okay? So there's a lot of prophets. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There, there's a whole bunch of names of people in the Bible that show up in the Old Testament. None of those people were the ones saying, we're good, guys. Okay? So they were wrong. History is written by the ones who are right, or the winners. or Yeah, so... Uh, but but so the, the point here as we, we start is, is we have to recognize that when Ezekiel goes into exile, the Israelites who go into exile are a part of this big idea of, well, the, the temple still stands. There's still hope. But at the same time, all of the prophets that actually are receiving a word from the Lord are saying, no, turn from your ways. But, but the, the reality is no one is turning. And so when we come to Ezekiel 1 and 2, what Rich talked about last week, um, there's that whole, like, the whirring, the wheels, and there's the throne on top of the wheels. And um, if you're not a Christian, you read that and go, aliens. But if you're a Christian, you read that and go, the throne of God is in Babylon. And that should make us pause for a very long time. Because you see, the throne of God, it, it's the place where, where heaven and earth meet. It, it's where God is with his people, if the temple is still standing and the throne of God is in Babylon, something is very, very wrong. We begin in Ezekiel 3.15. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib who were dwelling by the Chibar Canal and I sat where they were dwelling. And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. What was he overwhelmed at? For the last, uh, like seven days ago was the day where the Lord appeared to him and the, the wheel and the, the, the throne of the Lord appeared to him in Babylon and said, prepare yourself. And Ezekiel fell face down and the Lord brought him up with the Spirit and stood him up and said, you're going to deliver some messages. And, and, and so that's, how we come into this. Ezekiel is overwhelmed and at the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel has been waiting for what the Lord is going to do and he's so overwhelmed he just sits there and now the Lord is going to give him a message. But before we jump into that, geography. Um, so Jerusalem is where the Holy of Holies is. That's the center, central point of the temple where it's like the place where God dwells with his people. Um, that's, that's where Jerusalem is. Tel Abib and the Chibar River, where Ezekiel is, is like 700, 600, 700 miles away. You need to know that, because everything we're about to read doesn't make sense unless we understand that. So, um, so, so we begin, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So at, at the, the start of what the Lord says, to Ezekiel. He, he says, you're going to be a watchman for the house of Israel. And if you've ever seen the movie Mulan, you know that the movie begins with a scene where, where the bad guys are, and I'm spoiling this, um, but if you go watch the live action one, it'll be nothing like it because Disney's figured out we can't just shot for shot remake. But anyways, um, so, so the bad guys climb up the, the, uh, the Great Wall of China and they're, they're attacking. And what does the watchman do? The one who's there, what's his, he's got to run and he's got to start a fire so it'll be a signal fire and then signal fire, signal fire, signal fire, signal fire, all, all the way down. That's what the watchman's job is. And, and the watchman's purpose in doing that is by sending off those signal fires, the watchman's job is done because the watchman's job is to make sure they know, right? Like, like the watchman doesn't say, now I need to get on a horse and return to China and tell them what they need to do to defend, 
you know, they're going to enlist all of the young men, one from every house. But that's more spoilers. But anyways, the, the point of this is that the watchman's job is done when they send the message. And so we move in. God says to Ezekiel, so you're going to be a watchman, and here is what it looks like to be a watchman. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So Ezekiel, I'm going to give you messages, and I'm going to give you a message to tell the wicked people, stop being wicked or you'll die. And if you don't tell them and they die, yeah, they're guilty, but I'm also going to say their blood is on your hands. If you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So, so if you warn them, that's all you got to do. That's your job. At the same, in the same way, if a righteous person starts to turn from their righteousness and, and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Fancy way of saying, I'm trying to have you tell him, stop. Um, because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. So if someone knows better, and they start to do wrong, and you don't warn them, and they, they perish because of it, it's also on your hands, Ezekiel. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Okay, so I'm going to summarize all this in a really simple way. Ezekiel the watchman has two jobs. First, he has to deliver messages. And second, he's not accountable for the response of those messages. That's not really a job, but that's what he's supposed to do. Okay? Does that, are you following with me? Good. Now there's another thing here. He's like 700 miles away. So we have to remember that because that never changes in this story. It's not like Ezekiel in a little bit will find out, and the Lord told him, go back to Israel or go to Jerusalem. He never does. He stays far away this whole time. And that's really important as we go into the story. But Ezekiel's responsibility is to deliver a message. He's not accountable for their response as long as he delivers the message. That's his job as a watchman. Now, it can be very hard to deliver a message or to tell someone, here's what you need to do, or, or to do anything like this. Um, I am a youth pastor, and that is a huge part of my job description, is telling students, here's what you need to do, and they don't do it, specifically junior high and freshman boys. And I got permission to tell the story I'm about to tell, but I want you to think, have you ever had to tell someone, someone a message when you knew that they would not listen? This is Jacob Onu. Um, Jacob is the tallest boy in our youth group, um, by quite a bit. He's a sophomore. I got permission, and I even, um, we talked through what I was going to share today, and he clarified it for me, which made it so much worse. Because when he explained and rationalized what had happened, I just went, oh, it's worse than I thought. Um, but so this is Jacob, and a couple years ago, we had a retreat, a, a fall retreat, where we go to this camp called Wall Camp, and at this camp was a glass table. Okay? So. Every year when we go on our, our retreats, um, we, go, we go to this camp called Wall Camp. It's an awesome place. Um, we, we have all the guys stay upstairs in a room, and then all the girls upstairs in a different room, and they're, they're like locked off from each other. But it's this, it's this really cool camp where we get just a cabin all to ourselves. And, and at this camp, the, the leaders sleep downstairs right under the students. And I only have one rule that is like a hard and fast rule on every retreat. It's, it's even with the junior hires, it's, it's with anyone. When we go on a retreat, 
that first night, because we're there like three days. When we go on a retreat, that first night, just please be quiet and go to bed. Why? Because everyone's all excited to be here, but all the fun stuff we're going to do is going to happen, for the most part, on Saturday. So please, go to bed. Not just for you, but for the guy trying to fall asleep, who you're ruining their sleep. And every year, I go up and I yell, not yell at first, but I go up and tell the boys, I give them this speech. Guys. Guys. And I give them this speech knowing that I'm going to have to say it like five times. But I go, guys, go to bed. And here's why. We've got so much fun stuff coming up tomorrow. And, and, and we want to have tomorrow be great. I will stay up as late as you want on Saturday. I stay up stupid late every retreat on Saturday because all the students want to stay up. And we play board games and we all get cranky with each other. And everyone's like on a sugar high because it's like, oh, we have all this leftover food. Let's eat all of it right now. And every single retreat, I'm willing to do this on Saturday night. But just go to bed on Friday night. And so I beg all the kids. And so, so this year I, I did that. And then I went downstairs and me and Adam Baker were the two guy leaders on this trip. And I go down, and me and Adam start talking. And on this, I forgot to mention this, on this retreat, we had more freshman boys than all of the other ages combined, um, which was, I, it's not my fault, but I, it was crazy. And, and, and so tell them all, be quiet, go to bed, knowing they're not going to listen. I go down, and me and Adam are talking, and then they start to get really loud again. So I go back up, and like some of them are like standing when I open the door, like, what? And I'm like, guys, you're supposed to be in bed. Go to bed. Like, guys, just Friday night, just go sleep. You can do this tomorrow night. Okay. So I go back downstairs. Me and Adam are super loud again. I go back up. And this time I more yell. I'm more like, guys, come on, go to bed. And um, I was made fun of by our junior high boys on our last retreat. But when I say the word guys probably a thousand times on Friday night of retreats. Guys, 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 go to bed. Guys, be quiet. Let your neighbors fall asleep. But so I, I do this. And I go down to Adam and we're about to go to bed, and they're getting loud again. And Adam's like, Matt, and he was in first service, and he started chuckling because he remembered this the exact same way. It's like, Matt, the kids seem way more disrespectful than usual. And I was like, Adam, Adam, no. They're just excited to be here. Right now, there's just all this energy, but they're going to calm down. They're going to do bad. This weekend's going to be, and I don't even get the sentence out, and we hear thud, thud, shattering glass. <sighs> Jacob's side of the story uh, on the ceiling was a spider. How did Jacob know this? Another student was shining a flashlight, and so they all saw the spider. And Jacob, as he tried to explain to me on Friday night, was worried that a spider would lay eggs in his mouth. So Jacob got a tissue, and, and it gets worse. because So I have always pictured this story as Jacob didn't realize the table was glass, stepped on the table, and it shattered. Jacob knew the table was glass, put his foot up on it, to see, will it hold my weight, got up on the table and tried to leap onto the ceiling to kill the spider. Now, the table could not support his weight. Um, and so what happened was, I came upstairs ready to scream to just see Jacob standing there, standing on glass, kind of like, oh. and, and the only reason I can tell this story and laugh about it is he had one tiny cut on his shin or like his ankle. I could not believe it. He, he was barefoot, and he was able to step up and just brush the glass off of each foot. And so that was a message that I had that I knew wouldn't be heard. And look at the calamity that came from it. Now, 
you are a high school student or parent of a high school student, interested in going on a retreat like this, but not this, because the camp no longer has glass tables, they actually apologized to us for having glass tables. And I had to send, yeah, I had to send an email saying, this was not your fault. How much does a new table cost? We will pay for it. Um, but if you'd like, if you have a high school student or you're a parent and you want your student to go, uh, and if, or if you're a high school student, talk to me. We have a retreat in two weeks and we'd love to have you with us. There will be no glass tables to break. So, so we come back to our story. And so, so Ezekiel is a watchman and he has two jobs. His first job is he needs, or two things. He's got to deliver messages and make sure they're delivered. And it's not his, it's not his, he's not accountable for how they respond. Now, as we keep going, it, the next verse, and the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, arise, go out into the valley and there I will speak with you. Now, we have to go into ancient Israel mode here. Okay, when you see the phrase, go out into the valley, I want you to think of any times in the Bible where God appears in a valley. The answer should be not very often. You see, God, the glory of God specifically, is always in high places. Now, as a, as a Christian, you might say, well, Matt, God is everywhere. It's like, yes. God is everywhere. He's omniscient. That's one of his attributes. God is everywhere. But, but in the Old Testament, like even we sang today, you're the mountain to which I run. You're in the heavens. We, we don't talk about God. Like, like you, I mean, we do bow our heads when we pray, but it's not because we think God is below us, right? Hopefully you don't think that. Um, but although if the earth is round, down, no, sorry. Um, this is, so anyways, the glory of God. God saw, let us go down, that there's all of these different ideas in the Bible. This is a very small example. But, but the point is, is that whenever God has, a, has someone that's going on a mission or, or he's commissioning someone or different things, the expectation that we have is that they're going to go up. When you think about Moses going to the burning bush, it's, it's up. If you, if you think about Moses after that, when the Israelites return, where's God? He's up on that same mountain. There, there's this idea, Jerusalem is very high up, and there's a temple in it that's on a temple mound. It's up. And in fact, if you know ancient geography, one, or even modern geography, that hasn't really changed. Um, Jerusalem is very high up in altitude, and Babylon is not. Um, the exiles who would have been leaving Jerusalem would have been traveling downhill almost the whole way. And, and so when we come back to this and see, arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you, this should trigger something for us. Because this is not where we expect to see God. And it's not where we expect to send a prophet. But So I, Ezekiel, arose and went into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Chebar Canal, and I fell on my face. And it is here that we have to just pause completely and think, because the implication here is very, very big for an ancient reader. And that, that implication is that, that the glory of God refers to what should be in the Holy of Holies, in the center of the temple. It's the most holy place. That's where the throne of God would be. But instead, Ezekiel has seen it twice now in Babylon, and not just in Babylon by a river, but now in a valley, 700 miles away from the temple. And, and what we find out here is that God is inverting a theme in the Bible. 
And there's a reason for this. We're actually going to spend a whole lot more time on this next week because what we're going to find out as we keep going is that not only is God appearing to Ezekiel in Babylon in a valley far away, in in the opposite of where you would expect to see him. You you look up, but now he's down. Next week we're going to find out that that when Ezekiel saw the Lord, what we're seeing is that the the throne, the, the, the presence of the Lord has left the Holy of Holies. And as a reader, this should just break our hearts because this is a sign that the God who's going to dwell with his people in the temple and the house of the Lord in Jerusalem has left. And, and for an ancient reader, when they heard this, they would be forced to make two choices. One, Ezekiel is an absolute liar. Or two, we're in a lot of trouble. So I rose, he, he goes in the valley and the glory that he had seen at the Chebar Canal, it's there. And he fell on his face. And that's that same theme from last week where, where Ezekiel falls on his face before the Lord. And what does the Lord do? The Spirit entered me and set me on my feet and he spoke with me. And, and so again, the Spirit prepares him, sets him on his feet and to allow him to start on the message again. And what does he tell him? He's supposed to be a watchman for the house of Israel. So he probably should start delivering messages. Go, shut yourself within your house. And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you and you shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them for they are a rebellious house. He is not going to be a very effective watchman. You see, the the Lord is going to prevent him from speaking on his own accord. But the Lord goes on to say, But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will, re- he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. So what we see in this part of Ezekiel, God is giving him his mission, and then he's saying, I'm only going to allow you to speak at certain times. I'm going to prevent you from speaking anything else. And, and this should challenge us because it's like, well, God, don't you want Ezekiel to, to just go back and proclaim, hey, guys, judgment is coming? And if we know our Old Testament, what we know is there are tons of prophets in Jerusalem right now saying, hey, guys, judgment is coming. But now we've got a prophet far away that's going to start making those same claims. And the Lord is going to speak through him from far away. And it's supposed to give us this idea of here's what's happening and the Lord is in it all over, not, not just in Jerusalem, but all over. The Lord is working to show the people you need to repent, you need to change from your stone heart, knowing full well that they're not going to listen. Now what comes out of this in chapter 4 is that Ezekiel has to do a bunch of weird things. Um, we don't have time to talk specifics about them, um, but the first thing he has Ezekiel create a diorama of a siege. He's like doing arts and crafts. He takes like a brick and he writes Jerusalem on it and then he puts things around it so that people who come up to see this prophet who's prophesying 600 miles away will look at it and go, oh, that looks like a siege. He, he's told you need to lie on one side for 390 days and then on the other side for 40 days and you're going to be tied up. And, and God says the reason you're doing this, in, in ancient Israel there, there's this thing they did called the Day of Atonement where they would tie up a lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And, and Ezekiel is actually being, God is saying, you're symbolically going to point out the 430 years of sin that have not been repented of. And then the next thing, you're going to eat poopy bread. Um, And I don't have a lot of time to go on this, but 
twice in 365 days, I've had the opportunity to mention this from the stage. Um, and that's not by my choosing. It's just the, the Lord is in it. But I, I say this jokingly, but if you want to know more about the Eat Poopy Bread, um, like May 18th, I preached on it. Um, essentially, Ezekiel is told, you're going to eat bread made from whatever's left over in the house, and, and you're going to cook it over human dung. And then Ezekiel's like, I really don't want to do that. And the whole, the whole point is the people of Israel who are in the siege are going to run out of food. And because of that, they're also going to run out of fuel. And so they're going to cook with whatever's left in the cupboards. And they're going to, they're going to cook with whatever they can light on fire. That's the point. Um, and then the next thing Ezekiel is told is, hey, you're also going to use a sword to chop off your hair um, in, in three different parts. Now, Jess isn't in here, the service, but um, I actually texted her on Friday and said, I'm thinking I'm going to shave my head on stage. Um, and Jess's response was something along the lines of, do you remember the last time you did that? Um, because last time I shaved my hair really short, the first thing she said was, oh, um, and so I'm not doing that today. Um, I am much less good looking um, with short hair. Um, so I just wanted to share that with all of you because Jess thought I was serious, which I thought was funny. Um, I'm glad she didn't like call my bluff. Like, you should do it, Matt. I'll do it for you while you keep talking. Um, finally, he's going to speak a whole bunch of judgments against Israel where the theme is, and the word of the Lord came to me. And then he's going to say these words out um, to those, I'm assuming those who come to see him, who are like, there's a prophet here who for 430 days laid on a side. We want to hear a little bit about what he has to say. But he is going to do all this from six to 700 miles away. God is not calling him to go back to Israel. He is in the exile already, and God is speaking through him to tell the Israelites what's coming. And the whole time God is doing this and having Ezekiel do this, what God is saying over and over thematically is, is Israel is not going to listen. Their heart of stone is not going to change. It's depressing. It's, it's when we read this, the, the exile is like in Israel's history, if, if without the cross and w- without Jesus, without the Messiah, the exile is just this devastating moment from which there's no real return. The, the return that happens doesn't really mean anything until a messiah it's it, the exile shows just the lowest point in israel's history and um so so we come to this moment and ezekiel delivers all these signs and and what we see out of this is ezekiel knows as he does this that israel will not listen and and i just i go back to this list and i think if god asked me to do all these things for people that as he's telling me to do them he's like and they won't listen i would be pretty depressed like, why am I laying on my side? Like, bed sores, even. Like, laying on your side, 390. I just cannot imagine how terrible this must have been for Ezekiel. But he, what, what we learn is that he's a faithful watchman for the Lord. And his heart breaks over and over in the book of Ezekiel. Like, chapters 1 through 32, he is just in mourning over the sin of his people. And he acts as a good and faithful watchman, trying to tell them, you need to change. Turn to God. Remove those hearts of stone. Let him replace them with a heart of flesh. But it doesn't happen. Now, we're, we're coming to the end of where we're going to go today. Um, we're just, it's, it's a really sad story. But be, I, I want to tell you, we're not going to end in judgment today. Um, because what, what's really encouraging when you study out the book of Ezekiel is when you think about the fact that God used all of these moments to try and show the people that on the other side of the judgment that they earned, deserved, and received, 
God is saying, I'm, I'm not done with you yet. And for all of those people who were stone-hearted, who survived this judgment, God's desire, and we'll see that. I, I wish I got to preach on the second half of the book of Ezekiel, or the final third, but, but the point is, is that God's desire, you see it in the valley of the dry bones where God is going to breathe new life and give hearts of flesh to, to, just, to just the bones. That, that, that the Lord's desire is not the judgment. The Lord will judge because that's just a reality. If we refuse Him, He will judge. But His desire is that we would all have that heart of flesh. And we in the New Testament, the good news is we know how to have that heart of flesh. It comes from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. If we have a saving faith in Him, if He is Lord of our life, if we believe in our hearts that He is Lord and confess with our mouth that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And then we have the Holy Spirit. And if we have the Holy Spirit, that means we have a heart of flesh because God has given us that heart of flesh. That's the picture of salvation tied to Ezekiel is that God wants to give us a heart of flesh. And so we have messages in our lives as watchmen that sometimes we have to deliver. And I'm going to talk in a minute about what it could look like for you to be a watchman. But I want to tell you a story. And I got permission to tell this story. Um, I, have to, I do have to say that up front. Um, but um, as a, a few, a while ago, um, there was a, a time where Jess and I, there, were, there was um, a, a young woman at our church and um, we just... Through chance, we, we found out that she had moved, and, and as we were talking to someone, we found out, oh, she moved in with her boyfriend, um, and she's a young woman who loves the Lord, um, and who, I, we just, we were really surprised, really surprised, and so we went, and we, uh, I, first off, we prayed a whole lot. Um, I don't like confrontation at all. Um, when I'm up here, I may talk a big game. I don't talk a big game, but I may try to talk a big game, but the point is, is I don't like confrontation at all. But, but we started thinking about and, and praying about how to talk to this person. Finally, after like a lot of prayer, I was like, I just need to call her and we need to just talk. And so I called her and said, hey, I, I heard something. And then we talked a little bit on the phone. I said, would you be willing to sit down with me and Jess? And the, yes, they said yes. And so, so we sat down together. And the start of our conversation was actually really encouraging because as we started talking, it was, well, my lease was up, his lease was up. We're, we're thinking like marriage and so... Both of our leases are up, so pragmatically, it's much cheaper for us to get an apartment now and just work on getting married as quick as we can. That, that's kind of how, and I was like, oh, okay, well, mm, what about, you know, like, what about the standard we're called to live by in the world, you know, like living a holy way? Like, we had this whole conversation where, where Jess and I kind of said, we, we hear all that, but, but here's what we need to confront you on. And, and I, I was being a watchman. I was trying to be faithful to what the Lord had called me to. I, I felt like this is my role as a pastor in this young woman's life. And so, so we laid it out. And at the end of laying it out, um, the worst calendar decision of our lives, um, we, we, we confronted and then we went on vacation for like seven days. Um, and so, so it was like we had no way to follow up until after. And I was like committed, like, Jess, I'm not going to do any work things while we're gone. But I was praying that, you know, and um, when we ended the conversation with her, she said, well, I'm, I'll talk to him. But it's going to be really hard because neither of us could hold this lease alone. So, I mean, this, this has a lot of implications. Um, so, like a week and a half later, we finally got to sit down with them as a couple. Um, and when we sat down, we did not know, is this a, like, we did not know what we, were, what we were getting into. I wondered if this was going to be like, here's what we've decided. If you don't like it, we'll go find a new church. That's what I expected. Um, and, and I expected that not because I think little of this person, but because this stuff is hard. And, and so I kind of braced myself for what's coming here. And then as we started talking, um, the first thing that the boyfriend said is, yeah, like I, I heard what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. I, like, 
I found a place to stay for the next few months and we set a date. Here's when we're going to get married. And she was wearing an engagement ring and it was the most amazing thing. And the Lord worked in that story in so many ways. But the starting point of that story for me as a pastor and as a spiritual authority in her life was I had to act as a watchman. I had to say, hey, I, I, I can't force you to respond anyway, but, but I need to tell you, I don't think this is right. And, and out of that, we saw a lot of good things happen, and, and they're doing really well, and they're faithful to the Lord, and it's cool to see how they've grown. But, but in that moment, that was not a fun thing. But, but it's amazing how the Spirit works in those moments. Because we, we live in a world where we're, we're on the other side of the cross, where the Holy Spirit is engaged in a new way. And so, so when we confront each other, when we have to act as the watchmen, we can act that way with the faith that the Holy Spirit is going to move that, that, that's our hope and our prayer when we do that. Now, a really important thing right now we need to talk about is that the worst application you could take away from this sermon is I need to be a watchman or watchwoman and I need to go out and I need to go just tell everybody you're going to hell. Okay? And I say this jokingly, but these are verses that get used in this way. But you see, Ezekiel was a prophet talking to the people of Israel, and when we try and take that into, the, into our modern, our starting point for that should be, a, a prophet would be speaking mostly to the believers. Does that make sense? This is more internally in the church than externally out. Now, that does not mean we don't need to go share our faith, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but the starting point here is your application today should not be, I need to go tell my non-Christian friend they're doing bad things. That would be, like, like, maybe you do, but not because Matt said, be a watchman, go yell at that person. There, that's very situational, contextual. You, you need to do that with, with grace and love and prayer. Um, so, so please don't just take that as your application out of here. Make sense? Okay. I think like half of you are not going to do that. So um, the, what, what instead we, we need to think about is we need to think more as if we're the, the, like, and I, I don't say that I, I'm going to, oh man, I got to say two things here and I want to make sure I say them well. The first thing I want to make sure to say is that if you are in a position of spiritual authority in your home, in a small group, in, in, in our church, if you are in a position of spiritual authority, you have that mantle of watchmen. You do. And so if, if you are seeing things happen and you never speak up, that is a problem. But the other thing for each and every one of us, the heart check here to make sure we're not stone-hearted, is how are we responding when a watchman challenges us? That's the big question of today. The question of today is not, am I ready to go confront people? It's how do I respond when I'm confronted? Do I even know when I'm being confronted? Do I, do I respond when people are giving me a challenge? And um, if, if you're like, well, no one ever challenges me, like, I'm going to challenge you in a minute, I promise. But, but I'd encourage you, make sure you have some relationships where you have that. I, that's, I'm, I just joined my first, like, men's small group since I started at Springbrook, and I'm super excited about it. Um, but it's called Minis, and we meet at Manny's. So if you're looking for a small group, we meet Thursday mornings. Um, but anyways, the, the point of this is we need in our lives, we need people that are going to be watchmen for us, and then we need to check our hearts and make sure our heart is a heart of flesh as we respond to them. That, if I can give you anything out of the book of Ezekiel today, that's what we should be talking about. It's not about who am I going to confront, it's about how do I respond when the Lord uses someone to speak truth into my life. And, and as I processed 
what to do to close our sermon. Um, I had a really good talk with Rich, and we were kind of processing, and he said, well, this is where I think you should end. And I was like, that's where I was planning. We had this great talk, and I was really encouraged by it. But um, I am not going to spend today saying, who do you need to be a watchman for? Instead, I'm going to invite you to let me be a watchman. I think as a pastor, that's a role in my life. And I'm going to challenge you to respond. Okay? So I'm going to model what it means to be a watchman, and you need to model what it means to not be Israelites. Okay? So... Good. Unless you're from Israel, and then maybe. But not be the Ezekiel Israelites of stone-heartedness. Okay? Cool. Um, when I think about our church, I love so many things at our church, and I, I, I just want to speak this, not as a, we're not doing this, but as a, if there is one thing that I hope and pray, and I know Rich does, I know our pastoral staff, I know our staff, we pray for this, is that we would have more and more of an urgency to love on the lost to help them become the found. That, that means helping people come to know and have a saving faith in Jesus. And, and as I say this, you might be out there and you might say, I do that. I do that really well, Matt. And if that's where you're at, then what I say as a watchman is prove it by doing it more this week or doing it the same this week. Because if, if we do not have a heart for Jesus, or if we do not have a heart for the lost the way that Jesus had one, think about what he did for us. He did not come into a world with a bunch of found people and say, hey, I got a religion for you. He came into a world full of lost people and said, I, like, I want to bring you in. I want to give you that new heart. And so if you have that new heart, that heart of flesh, your desire should be when you see someone who is stone-hearted, you should say, I want so badly for them to know what life is like with a new heart. And if you're out there and you're like, Matt, I have no idea how to do this, I have the simplest application for you, but I warn you, if you really commit to doing this, it will change how you see the world. My, my challenge for you, if you don't know how to love on the lost this week, and, and when I say love on the lost, I don't mean I'm going to give some money to missions organization, although that's not a bad thing to do. What I mean by this is, are you going to intentionally take an act of love towards someone? Does that make sense? Who's lost? To help them become found. That's, that's what we're called to do as believers. That's the whole point of the Great Commission. Students, we've been going over that. For everyone here, the, the point of all, of, of what God has done and transformed in us is for us to be able to tell others about that and help them experience that as well. And, and so if, if you're like, I have no idea how to do that, the simplest thing you can do over the next seven days is just every day pray, Lord, help me love the lost the way you love the lost. Like if you don't have anything else to do, just write that down. Lord, help me love the lost the way you love the lost. If you pray that, you will begin to see the simplest ways to do it because the Lord will just Put them in your mind and put them on your heart. I have so many, I'm not going to give examples right now because I didn't get permission from anyone um, outside the church for this, but I have so many examples of even in the last few months, I've been praying differently and it has been so cool to see just little places where the Lord has just stepped in and worked. Because we follow a God who's going to judge, but his desire is that at that judgment, his desire, what God rejoices in is not those that are being judged, it's those who he's... This person has a new heart. I gave them that new heart. They are part of my kingdom, part of my family. They are one of my children. Come on in. That's God's desire for each and every one of us and for each and every person that we interact with every week. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Um, Lord, I, I just, I, when I study your word and, and when we have the chance to open it up together and just see how your spirit moves and see your desire 
it is so encouraging to know that your desire is for, I, I, th- I just can't, I can't help but think of Ephesians where you say, uh, while, while we were dead in our sins, and, and then it says a whole bunch of things about what it looks like to be dead in our sins, and it says, but God, and then it talks about how you made us alive through Christ. We thank you that your desire is not that we would be stone-hearted, that we'd be dead, that we'd just have a heart of stone. I just, I, I can't, I love that imagery of a heart of stone for just dead. And your desire is that we would all be made new, we'd be alive, we'd have transformed lives because of the heart that you have given us. And I pray for everyone here, if someone here does not know you, does not know what it means to have a transformed heart, that they would not leave today without asking questions. And I, I pray for everyone here that does have a transformed heart, um, that, that they would leave today saying, I desire to see that in others as well. I, I pray that you would just help us as we move forward um, to, to just not miss this and, and that we would be those who respond to you with just a, just a strong desire to ju- just follow you well and that we would be those with transformed hearts of flesh and we would be helping others have that same joy that you've given us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you.